when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 82 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me for our Halloween 2017 episode is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. For our third and final horror episode of this October, we are going to be discussing the 1999 cult classic found footage film, The Blair Witch Project. Patrick, I definitely count myself among this film's loyal fans, and I sing its praises often, so I'm grateful that we have a chance to talk about it. But before we do, what have you been up to lately, man? Well, I finally got a chance to finish a book that I've been reading over the last several weeks. I've been trying to put together a, a book list of things that um, I want to read over the next you know, winter period. I kind of get go into uh, social hibernation, at least for the for the winter, fall and winter. And it feels like a good time to dive into books, you know, sit by the fire and curl up and all that good stuff. So I was looking for recommendations and a friend of mine named Ruth, who is a librarian, uh, fittingly so, recommended a new book series, which I'm always hesitant to read because if the books aren't all out, then I have to wait and it's frustrating. You know, I'm I'm the guy who's like, look, I got to wait until all the, all the all the books come out in order to start reading these because I don't want to be left hanging. But she mentioned Neil uh, Shesterman's new book series. Um, and I think the series itself is called Arc of a Scythe. Uh, at least that's what Goodreads calls it. But the first book is called Scythe. And if you know me, you know I'm a huge fan of Neil Shesterman. I, I really, really enjoyed his um, distology of the Unwind. Uh, it wasn't a trilogy. It was a four-book series. And he put out this new book series that takes place in the not-too-distant future like his like his previous one. And like Unwind, it deals with kind of a social commentary undercurrent as its base. But it's a it takes place in a world that doesn't have hunger. There's no disease. There's no war, no famine. Like everything is perfect. So it's a world that doesn't have any kind of issues whatsoever. And in this world, there is actually a population problem because people are able to essentially live forever because of the way technology has advanced. And so there have been these individuals that have been tasked to glean them or kill them. And it's used to, it's basically a population control measure and they're called scythes. scythes. And so there's the, the, the book centers around these two characters, Citra and Rowan which doesn't surprise me because Neil Shesterman loves to use really clever names in in his books. And the first book centers around them becoming apprentices for a scythe named Scythe Faraday. And so the whole thing is about them becoming, uh, learning the trade as apprentices and eventually having to potentially square off against each other because of some incidents that happened during the book. And I, Tell you, man, I could not put this thing down. I was anxious to always get a chance to get through a few pages here and there. Whenever I would put my son to bed, I'd, I'm grateful that I have it on my Kindle because I can <laughs> I can read it in the dark. And so, 
it 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 gripped me from probably the first 20 pages and because i love what shesterman does and how he writes and how he uses the issues of the world around us to kind of infuse his stories it's not overly it's not preachy it's not his way of trying to make a statement that he believes in but it's really more about his way of saying here's what's going on and I'm leaving it to you to kind of answer the question that I'm asking in this book. So in unwind, it was one question in yeah. this, it's another. And I love the tagline of the book. Thou shalt kill because it harkens back to the 10 commandments, you know, thou shalt not kill. And you kind of wonder, you know, what is this about? And the way in which he kind of builds his world, the way in which he justifies how these scythes go about gleaning people there are, of course, different types of size that go about how they do things. Some are more, I guess, in in the world's view, more merciful. Others are more sadistic. But even among that scythe culture, they're almost like priests. They have their own set of rules. They're almost like, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with, with biblical context, they're kind of like the Levites. They're kind of like this priestly organization that exists outside of the world in which they are operating. And so they have their own set of rules. They have their own sets of mandates. They have a quarterly meetings where they get together and they talk about what's going on. And it's just fantastic. Um, the second book comes out in January and I cannot wait for it. I've got it on pre-order and I, I, uh, I shot a text to Ruth when I finished. I said, I'm so mad at you. I'm 20 pages from finishing this and I know it's not going to end with some kind of resolution. But of course, yep. it sort of does. Just like Unwind ends as a you know, you you could take it as a as a standalone book. I uh, never this, went further. I mean, I've well, only read Unwind and it worked just exactly, fine. It does. And Scythe works just fine as a as a standalone. But you know that there's going to be more, so you're kind of anticipating it. So he doesn't leave it on too much of a wait till this happens. But there's a lot that's going on in the world that still needs to be resolved. And unlike Unwind, because I know that there are more books coming, it's more intriguing to me to hopefully find out how he's going to resolve, you know, pieces of it, X, Y, and Z. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I think that, yeah, so the second one comes out um, sometime in January. So cool. I'm ready to, to dive in and kudos to Neil Shesterman. He's been two for two with his book series for me. So yay. What else did he, I could have sworn there was, maybe it was not him, but I, th I thought he's there was done, something else he wrote. There there's another, there. there's another trilogy that I may give another chance to called the Skin Jacker trilogy. Okay. That's it the one has I was to thinking do with, of, yeah. I think it has to do with like dreams and death and all this other stuff, but it, yeah. it felt a little distant from the ideas and unwind and even this one. So I may, I may go back and revisit it at some point, but uh, I wasn't as big of a fan of it. Cool. Well, this one reminds me a little bit of a series that I read and its tone is much different, but there was a series I read about a, a grim reaper that was a kid. Um, and that it always, the name of this one, everything makes me think of that. <laughs> Again, and I don't even remember what it was, uh, what it was called now. I've totally forgotten. Uh, okay. it, was, it was a young adult series. It was good. Okay. Whatever it was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's uh that's great. I, I know what you mean because I don't hardly read at all anymore. Sad, but true. I will admit it. Just so many movies and, and video games and other things hobby wise are above it. Um, and when I do listen to things, I listen to podcasts a lot instead of books. Yeah. And so 
the only I'm in the middle of a series as well. I got hooked on one last year. I read book one, uh, and then I was so hooked that I pre-ordered book two, which came out this April. And now I'm waiting on book three and I haven't done that either in a long time. So I know what that feeling is like that you're having right now where it's like, Oh, I, this stinks. I have to wait. Yeah. Waiting, <laughs> waiting is not what we do anymore in our culture. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah. In the world of stranger things. And, and, yeah. and we watch the whole thing in one weekend and we're done. We can't yeah. do that anymore with actual books that don't come out. I mean, I'm still waiting on a book by Patrick Rothfuss that who knows when that sucker is going to come out. Hmm. <laughs> kind of like the people waiting on a, uh, Game of Thrones to to finish up. Or Half Life Three. Or Half Life Three. Or Half Life Three. Yeah, I don't. I'm kind of giving up hope. But, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I can do anything for this show, it can be to bring the book aspect of entertainment to our what we've been up to. So excellent. Know that we can do that. There'll probably be more book reviews and book book recommendations coming in the next several months. I've got two or three that are on my list. One that I'm reading right now that I'm very excited to share about because I'm loving it so far. But I want to finish it first. Awesome. But what about uh, you? What do you got to? Well, not books. I'm not going to talk about books. I mean, I am reading stuff right now, but I'm not done. So we'll, we'll put that on hold. The The first thing I want to mention real quickly is uh, one of the films I watched this past week was a movie called Song to Song. And this is the latest Terrence Malick movie. And before I start, I want to ask you, do you have any kind of history with Terrence Malick at all? Do you have Here's opinion? the thing about Terrence Malick is that I don't at all. Okay. It's, I feel like I'm walking into a really highbrow party every time a Terrence Malick conversation happens on Facebook. And I'm like, I, I just, I just watched alias a couple of weeks ago. That's cool. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I just feel no, like I, it's I way over my head. Okay. Yeah. So, so he has a reputation of being pretentious and, um, he is an experiential experimental filmmaker for sure. Uh, he does, his his big one that everybody loves and knows the most is Tree of Life. And, you know, it follows this family and it's kind of like two interconnecting narratives. And in the middle of it, it's this just crazy, beautiful, graphical representation of the creation of the world. I mean, it's it's bonkers. Like sometimes his things don't always fit together. And narratively, sometimes there's a lack of structure that really bothers people. And there is a lot of voiceover work. Um, and then people don't like that either. A lot of times I was kind of a negative Terrence Malick opinion early on. I didn't really care for many of his films, the ones I'd seen. And to be fair, it was like a few I've recently started rewatching them and finding a lot more value out of them. I love the thin red line. It's probably one of my absolute top two or three favorite war movies ever. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's so different. Uh, and his style works in it. I think in a really, really big way. And his latest film uh, was called Night of Cups, came out a couple years ago or last year, and I think it was it was Christian Bale, um, and, and it just kind of bombed. Uh, I I was not I was not as low on it as most people. I enjoyed Night of Cups for what it was. However, like some of Malick's films, it has a lack of kind of hope at the end. It, it shows us characters that are just not great people and they kind of wallow in their sin and their destructive nature. And we don't really ever kind of get out of that. So I went into song to song a little nervous because it had Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender and Rooney Mara and Natalie Portman. 
Now, this is like checking boxes for me in a huge way, right? All of these actors and actresses are high, high on my favorite lists. And so I thought, all right, that sounds good. This is about the Austin music scene is all I knew. That sounds pretty interesting too. Emmanuel Lubezki's coming back to do the cinematography. Well, that's a, a major plus. So I thought, okay, you know, th- this thing has a lot of potential, but reviews were fairly negative coming out. I watched it and I fell in love with it. And I'm talking hard fell in love with it to the, to the level that I immediately stopped the film when it was over. I was going to say I rewound it. I didn't rewind it because I'm not in, I don't have a VCR anymore, but I (laughs) hit play again and I watched it back to back two times in a row. It was that moving for me. And essentially what it is, is it's a story of Rooney Mara, who is a guitarist. She is having an affair with Michael Fassbender, who is a record producer of some sort. And she is hoping to enhance her career, right? By having this relationship with him. Later on, she meets Ryan Gosling, and they have a real relationship, but she's maintaining both of these, and then it starts to get sticky. Uh, Michael Fassbender also is the producer, ends up offering Ryan Gosling a job, and so we end up getting this really interconnected narrative and, and story of these relationships. These people make poor choices, some of them, um, but throughout it, it is just so well portrayed to, I mean, it feels so realistic to me. It feels the way you think of the music scene and some of these, these Hollywood circles, how relationships would slowly dissolve and how easy it would be to do things and make choices to try and help your career. And then also to not understand what real love is. And what is awesome is that in this, he, the dialogue and the voiceovers, give us that same concept and it talks about that. And what really is great about this movie is the last 10 to 20 minutes, it offers hope. And that's not always something that Terrence Malick gives us. So we see characters go through these poor choices. We see bad things happen. We see their lives affected negatively by what they're, they're doing, but we then get to see them come out of that. Some of them and, realize things about forgiveness and mercy and love. They talk about those specific words. Uh, and it was just, it was really powerful to me in a lot of ways. It kind of parallels a, a prodigal son story. Honestly, there's, there's, you could take some biblical reference out of this if you, if you wanted to watch it that way. And the dialogue is just awesome. I feel like he writes lyrical poetry uh, it works perfectly with the the cinematography. You know, it's Lubezki, so I don't know what else to say. It's amazing, and, and there's no doubt about that. The soundtrack's perfect. It starts with a song by Die Antwood, and it ends with a uh, sonata or something, uh, an orchestral piece um, by uh, one of the, the Baroque composers. So, uh, Debussy, I think it is. So, I mean, that tells you the 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 difference in soundtrack it's all over the place and it feels like every transition works i listen to the soundtrack by itself it's wonderful so i'm really high on this movie it's going to be up there in my end of the year list extremely high and it it might be my favorite malik it might be better than tree of life for me i just i really really liked it did 
did it with all that to be said, the way you described it, it's very cohesive. Does it, does it flow a lot like his other movies? Like, is it very kind of all over the place, but for you, it felt very cohesive or is no, it? No, that's, that's what was different for me. I think is that it, it feels like a, a story you can follow. Okay. Now the cuts are crazy. Some people can't handle him and I get it. Like, the, the way that the scenes cut from one to another, sometimes it is fast and time moves fast, but I never felt lost. I always felt like the dialogue and the voiceovers were accurately portraying the events that were occurring to take me forward in the story. And I always knew where we were and what was happening next. So I, ne- I, okay. I felt like it had a, a more direct narrative structure than his usually do. That's good. That's good. And that might be, I, again, I've, Tree of Life has been on my watch list for probably three or four years now because I've heard so many good things about it. But like most audiences, you know, if you can't experience and enjoy and fully appreciate a movie kind of as bombastic as as that, it's kind of hard. When it's hard to digest, I think obviously that takes away from your movie experience. So this sounds like maybe a nice entry point into Terrence Malick, at least getting kind of a picture of who he is as a filmmaker, as well as, you know, having that more cohesive story. Plus has a great cast, uh, as you mentioned. It's, it's so good. I mean, they're, I love this one. I good. really, I really, really do. Good. The the other thing I really want to mention just, and I'll keep this brief, but on a kind of a whim this weekend, I picked up a Nintendo switch and <laughs> I know it's like I on know. a whim. I decided to buy a car <laughs> yeah, on a whim. I went to Hawaii. No, I know it's not a car. I mean, come on. Like it's a scooter maybe, but, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I picked up a Nintendo switch and the new super Mario Odyssey game. And I've got to say with a few, I don't know, five, six hours into it, it's easily in contention for the best Mario game that they've made. And it is by far the best one in a long, 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 long time. This thing is so innovative and so cool. It's got mechanics to it that are just brilliant and interesting and fun. And it's a joy and they took away death in the game. So you can't get a game over if you die or you, you know, fall off a cliff for now you don't lose a life. You lose 10 coins. That's it. 10 coins. <laughs> and you come right back. So it's so accessible and, and especially for kids. Um, it is perfect. It, it is like, it's getting tens, 10 out of tens all around, uh, for reviews. I even read one review that gave it six out of five. Okay. <laughs> so, and I, you know, it's right there for me. It's, it's amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm really loving it. And I, I'm kind of blown away because I was a little put off by the switch. I thought it was kind of gimmicky again with Nintendo and uh, who's really going to use that handheld as a handheld. That's just ridiculous. And this weird joy stick controller with two pieces. It's amazing. We, you pick it up, you take it out of its little dock and the kids took it in the car with us and they just continued our games. And then we just plug it into the dock and boom, we're playing on the TV and it looks like it's in HD, like it's, you know, a console and never got unplugged. So wow. I'm highly impressed with it. And, uh, and we're having a lot of fun with that. Okay. Good, good, good. So yeah, those are my, uh, two for this week. I also want to talk about Ketty so bad cause it's national cat day. Happy national cat day. Uh, <laughs> it won't be when you're listening to this, but it was when we recorded and I saw this awesome documentary about 
cats in Istanbul. But you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to save that, and I'm going to talk about that next week because we need some gentleness going into Black Hawk Down. Okay. That sounds great. That that sounds perfect, actually. Yes. (laughs) Yes. All right, Patrick. Well, with all of that out of the way, it is time to get into the Blair Witch Project. Now, first up, listeners, we're going to spoil the heck out of this film. It's from 1999, so, you know, really, if you haven't seen this, what are you waiting on? I know that some of you actually in the Facebook group have told us that you have not seen this, and I hope that you will use this October and scary movie watching time to rectify that and uh, see this for the first time, because it is definitely something you need to experience. Whether you mm-hmm. end up liking it or hating it, whether you watch it again ever or not, you need to to see what it is and, and understand what it, what it was at the time. And that's kind of Patrick, what I want to lead with actually. Normally we start with our impressions and we're going to get there pretty quick, but this movie is really special and it's, it's special because of, it's kind of like when something is record breaking, it's, it's kind of like that. And it does have some records actually, but this movie was the movie that people consider to have launched the found footage genre, uh, which is a, got a big hold in the horror genre, especially, but it's, it's branched out some, but there was found footage films. There were found footage films before this, but they were never big in the public. They were not well known. This was the one that really put it on the map. So that's, that's kind of the first thing. It's also well known because of its viral marketing campaign, which I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of that and how this movie came to actually gross the amount of money that it grossed. That amount of money is a lot. So it was made on a budget of $60,000 and it grossed $248 million. Wow. I mean, it is the second highest uh, net return on investment of any film ever made. I don't know what number one is, but that's insane. Like that is, it's just bonkers to me when you, when you try to put that number in your head, you know, like if you do the math, I actually did this cause I thought it'd be fun. I wrote it down on a piece of paper two comma four, eight, oh, comma zero, 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 you know, and then I wrote the 60,000 under it. And you look at all those blank spaces over to the left, those columns that don't have any numbers under them <laughs> under the 2 million line. And you're just like, Wow. Um, that is, that is crazy. So it is, it really is. So yeah, it made a ton of money. Now reasons for this. Let's talk about that. So the movie was created by, conceived by, uh, directors and writers, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. They came up with this gimmick and they really went after a method of marketing that would kind of get into people's imagination before they entered the theater. And so in doing so, they ended up kind of creating a movie that the, that the audience participates in. It's, it's a lot, a lot like an experience uh, versus just seeing something you're, you're invested when you see right. Blair or people were invested in 1999 when they saw Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. So Haxon films, one thing they did uh, they were the ones that ended up bidding and winning the rights to this or not distributing it, but they were the ones that put it out. Um, it got bid for in 
I don't know if it was Cannes or Sundance, one of the film festivals it played in. There was a bidding war all night long to get the rights to this. But the production company that belonged to Myrick and Sanchez, they, they started by putting out this basic website. It was just www.blairwitch.com. And it gave the story behind the legend of the Blair Witch. And this went up in June of 1998. So about a year before the movie came out, I think, uh, is when this, when this happened. Now, this was in the late 90s. So this was before the internet was anywhere near what it is today, right? I mean, we didn't, I think MySpace existed <laughs> at the time, but it, it might have been, we might have still been mostly AOL in it up. Back in uh, 1999, I can't remember exactly, but it was not the thing it is now. So this was a a bold move for one. The website actually still exists today uh, if you go to it. And it's actually, it's it's worth looking at, I would say, but it's been updated. It reflects um, the third film, the recent remake that came out, or not remake, but sequel that came out last year. It's called Blair Witch. I hate it when they do that, when they name it something so similar, you know, instead of the Blair Witch Project, it's Blair Witch. And it's like, oh, when I say I'm I'm talking about Blair Witch, I want people to know that I'm talking about the first movie, not the third one. Now you got to burn some more syllables to get your justification on. (laughs) I have to talk more. That's just dumb. Um, So the website, it documents the history of the Blair Witch from 1785 to current day. Uh, October, or, well, at the time, October 1997. And that is when the rediscovered footage was apparently found and released to the families of the missing filmmakers. So what Haxon Films claimed is what is what is the same thing that you get in this genius ep- epigram at the beginning of Blair Witch Project. When, it, when the movie starts, you get this text, and it kind of sets everything up for you. And it simply says, in October of 1994... Three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. Boom. Fast forward. Here's the website. Website claiming that the footage has been found. Now, there's also a detailed section on the filmmakers, on Heather, Josh, and Mike. Um, it has photos of them preparing for their filming expedition. It has individual biographies with photos dating back to their childhood. Uh, there are pictures of the at- aftermath of the events, including their abandoned cars and tapes, um, police search pictures, and a number of interviews with family members and people who worked on the case. And then there's little snippets of film from the recovered tapes in Heather's journal. So all of this stuff, man, it's like a time capsule of an actual story that occurred. If you went to this website in 1997, 1998, or rather 1998, you would be under the impression that this was real. Do you remember ever doing that? I do. And this was a, this was an interesting thing because I remember this is somewhat unrelated, but when M. Night Shyamalan's The Village came out, there was a similar thing that either the History Channel or Biography or some network did uh, for viral marketing to kind of tie in his own personal autobiographical life and how pieces of him and how he grew up, how they influenced his movies. And it's, it created, it took this kind of weird supernatural turn. But anyway, uh, but it reminded me that 
each one reminded me of the other. And I, I do, I specifically remember either seeing a documentary or a, or a, like a half hour special that was cut that was eventually placed on this website that talked about the history of the Blair Witch and all the way up until the movie, uh, the, the beginning chronologically of the movie starts. And I remember having those thoughts of saying, whoa, did this, did that really happen? How, how are they able to get that into the theaters? Is this something special? Like are people, are people, I mean, do I have to pay more to go see this because it was a real thing? And it wasn't of course until after the movie debuted that we start seeing, you know, all the, all the reveals and whatnot, but it was fascinating, man. And it was, it was, I remember it being very unique in terms of how this thing is promoted. Yeah. That's, that's the thing is living, having lived through, living, lived through this, you and I both and being, <clears throat> Where we were in our our age, we were both early twenties, late teens, I guess. Yeah, I was. I think twenty years old. Yeah, yeah. I think we were right at twenty, probably. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for us, we we were taken by it. We were in the demographic that was being targeted too, and it felt so real. And it's it's hard to recreate that now for an audience member. So, we have a buddy. Uh, his name is Eric, who's in our in our, one of our listeners, who's one of our biggest horror fans we know. He hasn't seen this one. Like I, I always go to him for my recommendations and the movies that I need to go see all the classics, but he hasn't seen this, but see, it can never be the same for him. He can never watch this and have the experience of thinking it was real. Uh, he will, will always go into it knowing that it's not. And so that's, it just creates this completely different viewing between now and then. And we're going to talk about like both of ours too, and see how it's changed for us. But Back to this 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 website. So this website was created like that, like we were talking about, um, and then they actually put out ads on TV as well. But most of them were shown only like on college campuses. They really went after groups of people that they thought would resonate with this and would believe it. There was a special feature on the Sci Fi Channel, which may be what you're talking about, um, and it's actually called uh, what was it called the Curse of the Blair Witch, I believe. That's right. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Curse of the Blair Witch, which I'm going to talk about some more later. But they put this faux documentary out that supposedly supported the faux documentary footage of the Blair Witch Project. (laughs) It's like this inception of mockumentaries. It's it's crazy what they did. And by avoiding mainstream cinema ads, they both saved money. They also made people like you and me feel like we had stumbled onto something, right? So we got to feel special. Like, I, oh my gosh, I know about Blair Witch Project. How do you not know about the Blair Witch Project, right? Because we see it on something special like a college campus where you're not going to see it on TV playing on Monday Night Football. So that was that was very different as well. And I would say that the most effective thing that they did is for all the people that are naysayers and that are, are not going to believe that this was real, they went so far as to list the actors as missing, presumed dead on their IMDb page. That is that is dedication. So as an actor, these people had to agree to being listed as dead. That's nuts. I mean, Heather's mom got letters of condolence from family members who thought (laughs) that she was really dead. Like uh, we want to talk about method acting. You know, we do. We talk a lot about the things that Jared Leto and 
you know, Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale put themselves through their bodies through that they do to really get into character. But I mean, that's commitment right here. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk some more about that too. Just how much commitment because it it gets worse um, or gets, gets crazier. But yeah, so on the, on the opening weekend in July of 1999, um, artisan, that's who ended up putting the movie out. They took out a full page ad in variety magazine with just the website and the number of hits to date. They wrote 21,222,589. That's all that was on this poster. And it, it really worked as this social call to action. It was just an incredible example of the power of the internet at the time. And nothing has really come close to this. They also only released it on 27 screens for opening weekend, which made it feel like it was hard to get a ticket. I remember trying to get a ticket and feeling special. Like when I did, yeah, exactly, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, I got a ticket to the Blair Witch Project because I didn't know it was it wasn't playing at every single theater. Um, even when they went wide with it because their wide was so low. So all of this backstory, <laughs> all of this backstory before we start actually talking about the film itself um, is just to really outline how unique of a film it is we're talking about. This is not your normal everyday movie. Um, it's special. And I think when you evaluate this movie's greatness, you cannot take all of the stuff I just mentioned and pretend it didn't happen. You can't look at it just as a movie. You have to take it in the context of all of that stuff. I mean, the the actors even use their real names, Patrick. I mean, they they their real names are Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Michael Williams. They did not change them, uh, so they're not characters. They were people, and it was amazing um, going through this process. And so there we are. Um, backstory is properly laid. <laughs> I hope uh, I hope those of you who did not know all of this are completely intrigued now and excited to have finally heard this because if you didn't know this story, I think it will change how you view this movie, even perhaps in, in uh, retrospect. So Patrick, I knew that you had seen this before. Mm-hmm. I know that you watched it again recently. I also know that you are not a big fan of, of scary movies in general. Yeah. Um, so let's do you first. Okay. I was really excited. I'm going to kind of tease this. Just I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil it. But I was excited because you told me you enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. that lit me up. I was just smiling from ear to ear because you knew that this is one of my favorite horror movies. And so I, I got to ask you, I know that that wasn't always the case. So what happened in this recent viewing uh, well, for you? So when I, when, I, when I initially saw it, I remember specifically watching it like in my bedroom in the daytime because I knew how scary it was. And this came to a period when... I hadn't, it was, it was in between this period of like brand, you know, transitioning out of my loving of the eighties horror and not having seen anything for a while. And this thing popping up and kind of intriguing me because of all the reasons that you mentioned, I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater. I say didn't get a chance to, I chose not to, because after finding out what it was, I was like, that's scary. And that's a lot of cuss words. And so for me watching it, uh, watching it then didn't have as much of an impact on me, but you know, we've been going through this whole month and I'll include it as part of that, even though it, it came in September. And so I've had what I consider 
four variances of horror that we've experienced. We've gotten it. We've gotten the thing, which, you know, I think is considered borderline sci-fi horror, probably more sci-fi than horror, but we can call it gore <laughs> at that point. Uh, then we got scream, which is kind of slasher, not kind of, it is slasher. Let's not mince words here. And then we've got, we've got this and there's a fifth type that I think I've identified, which is more of the, uh, the conjuring, the supernatural kind of thing, which <laughs> I'm not going to say Blair, which fits into this because of, what we'll get into as the conversation goes on. And what I enjoyed most about this viewing is what I don't enjoy about horror. And it's the digestion of imagery and disturbingness, disturbing imagery and whatnot, and things that stay with me. And the thing that made this movie so powerful for me was the power of suggestion because so many times we didn't see anything. We heard, and in some ways we sort of experienced, as you mentioned, that as an audience, we're we're going through this first-person point of view, which I think really adds to that immersion. But everything was, for the most part, suggested. Um, I know one of the pieces of, of, of trivia that I remember reading about was the fact that at one point, the Blair Witch, there was supposed to be a hint of the witch appearing on camera. I think Josh was supposed to turn the camera at one point and we're supposed to see this entity or whatnot. And he failed to do so. And that's interesting to me because I think that would have probably lessened my viewing experience because the whole time my mind is the thing that is crafting the imagery of the story. I'm not being told or being shown. This is what these characters look like. This is what the witch looks like. I'm being given descriptions. It's almost like I'm reading a book. And I think that's where I enjoy the book side of things when it comes to my storytelling, because I can imagine these things and sort of when it goes to the movie screen, I can either be either completely like justified in what I've imagined, or I can be completely let down because it's not what I wanted. And I think what the Blair Witch Project did for me was it allowed me to experience through that power of suggestion and at the same time kind of keep control of my imagination. Whereas you take something like it or you take something like the thing and these images are like right at you, you know, there's no suggesting anything. There are scary clowns that turn into like grotesque figures coming at these people. And then there's this crazy dog that, you know, contorts into a gross looking alien that's like right in your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you guys mentioned on, you know, it's just, it's right there. And so for me, I can, I can digest that kind of stuff and I can enjoy the fear of that because I can feel like I'm a part of these people's experience. And so that's, what's interesting is even if I hadn't had the backstory of this potentially being a real life story, that's not what made it scary for me. The story itself is what made me uh, immersed in the fear of it. I will never go camping again because of this, because it's just, no, but, <laughs> but this is one of the first movies, scary movies, horror movies where that I can genuinely say I enjoy it. And I would probably see again because of that movie experience, which is not something that will happen very often. And so if there are other movies out there, um, you know, listeners that you think fall into that same category, um, feel free to shoot in my way. I might actually take a chance on those, but as a whole, the story itself was fantastic. And I think that power of suggestion is really what did it for me. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. Um, I think that is 
one of the strongest kind of horror films for me as well. And that's one of the reasons I really do gravitate toward a lot of supernatural horror is because you don't see it very often. It's the things you don't see or you see the, the results uh, of, of the horror, the, you know, the monster, you see what the, the outcome is, but you never see the grotesqueness of it per se doing these things or, or what it could, could be looking like. And so I, I like that as well. And I definitely think it's a big strength here. Um, I watched it. So when, when I first saw it, it was in 1999, I went and saw it, I believe, I guess it wasn't opening weekend probably, but it was close. It was whenever it went, went wide again I'm doing it in quotes and I got it where I was living and at the time I was engaged and I was in the military and I was uh I had my my fiance came down and was visiting that weekend so we went to see it and we went to the movie fully believing it was real okay so I'm gonna say that off the bat I was duped 100% I thought this thing was was the tr- the, the truth that made the experience for me terrifying. I I could not, like you said, I could not believe that they actually put this thing in theaters. It felt like a snuff film in some ways because it was just like, why would you do that? Right? Like these poor people, they're, they're actually dead. I just, you know, but you don't see it or you, you assume they're dead. And it was very, very scary. And I went home that night. We were staying in a hotel and it was very, very dark and very, very windy and very, very stormy course because duh that's what it had to be and so i remember getting back in in the hotel and laying in bed and flipping through the tv looking for stuff and we we were talking about the movie and just kind of trying to come down from it you know and we came across the sci-fi channel and what was playing but curse of the Blair witch that that documentary that they put out to help promote it and so we watched it right after watching the movie and it just again further solidified in my mind that this thing was absolutely real. I couldn't, I I would have argued with you over this. Well, later that night, the wind picks up and the trees start brushing up against the window. And there's this shadow of this tree branch with long crackly limbs. And it's, it's screeching and brushing up and banging against the window. We lost our minds, Patrick. I'm not kidding you. We ran into the bathroom and we sat in the bathtub probably for 30 minutes. We were <laughs> scared to death. I I am not afraid to admit it right here. I that's the most scared I've ever been from a movie. Like it was that awful for me. Um and in hindsight, I was reacting to that in a positive way. Now I understand, you know, how some of those heightened feelings of fear can be positives. But at the time, it didn't feel positive. It felt awful. And, you know, I think it was the next day we did some Googling and research and realized it wasn't real and we both felt incredibly stupid. But it never changed my experience. My experience with this film was unique. It was special. It was one of the – it's just something I've never had happen, you know, other than that moment, that that exact way that things played out. So I've been a big fan ever since then. And every time I've rewatched it, it's held the value for me. Not because I knew it was fake, but because of how brilliantly I felt like they portrayed it as being real and allowed me to still be immersed in it in that same way, even knowing it wasn't. 
much like you're talking about now, having that same experience with this most recent rewatch. Um, so let's just dig into it now. Uh, legends for one thing. So this is a story about a legend and legends are things that we sit around. Oh, one more thing on my story about camping. You mentioned not going camping again. I went camping last year, maybe, or two years ago recently. And I, I couldn't sleep. It was late at night. I was laying in the tent. And again, I had like shadows and tree branches, like brushing and like blowing outside my tent. And there was like chipmunks or something on the ground, like skittering around right outside. And I, I couldn't sleep. I was, I was like just on edge. I was so tightened up and, and it was, it was awful. It was so scary, Patrick. I don't, I don't think I ever want to go camping again either. Like give me a cabin. I'm good. In the woods? I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, that doesn't turn out well for anybody ever. Either. No, but, no, not at all. Uh, give me a cabin and not on the woods. Yeah. Like on the edge of the woods. There we go. Um, Close to the street. Right. Yeah. So, but back to legends. So this movie is, is based around the idea of the Blair Witch. And the Blair Witch is a legend that existed. Um, and it, what's interesting to me about this is that when the setup is occurring – and these stories are being told by, by all of these people that are being interviewed. I feel like it really puts us in this frame of mind to be scared of this. It feels, and they're all slightly different. Um, it feels like stories that have been passed down through oral tradition of storytelling around a campfire. Uh, we don't really know exactly what the Blair Witch and is and what happened at Coffin Rock. We get a bunch of different opinions on it. And we kind of have to make our own decision going into the film as to what we want to believe. Yeah, I, I look at that and I think the interviews really helped kind of give an unofficial breadcrumb trail for us to pick up on. And I think that's probably the genius of the filmmakers was, you know, planting these interviewees to essentially not even give them a script. I don't think even the the actors were given a script. They were just given kind of a, here's what's happening, go. And I think with the interviewees, they kind of had that same thing. So what was interesting to me was to, and it, it, it's, re- it's really not only just the unscriptedness, but it's also the editing that's the powerful thing. Because I know this thing was like 19 hours of footage. They chopped down to like 90 minutes or, or 80 minutes or whatever. And so there's some real power when it comes to this film in terms of the editing that takes place because we get these pieces and parts of these different stories and we don't need voiceover work. We don't need copy on the screen that says, this is what happened. We're getting these third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand, eighth hand accounts for people living in this town. And I think for us as an audience, the filmmakers know that if you were to put like professional people in front of the camera, we could probably say, Oh yeah, I guess that's true. You know, I guess, you know, this doctor says that this happened, but when you get like regular people as an audience, this is kind of how I felt. I'm seeing these quote, normal people just telling stories about what they knew about what their grandfather, the stories that their grandfather told them. And you know, it's, what's interesting, it's so interesting because in the, this is, you know, these aren't like nighttime interviews. It's not anything creepy, but it's just the way in which they're just casually telling the story. They're not scared. They're just kind of, 
yeah, you know, I remember growing up and going to bed uh, with my grandfather. He would tell me these, you know, these really crazy stories about this guy who would kidnap these kids and he would make them do these crazy things. And, and I'm going, this guy's just talking like this is a normal bedtime story. This is really creepy. And so it really creates a tone that we are going to kind of experience with these three individuals. And again, I think this one of the strengths of this, not only is editing, but the fact that this is all done first person, you know, it's not like we are, we are sitting in a, in a room or we're, it's not like we're watching this from a third person point of view. I mean, we're seeing it through the camera's lens, which almost creates, it feels genuine. And I think that's what the documentary style does is it feels genuine uh, you and I talk a lot about the fact that when we see biopics, we talk about the first thing we say is, well, what was real and what wasn't? And does that deter from our overall experience of it? But we kind of put documentaries in a different place because they're, quote, expected to be accurate. They're expected to tell the truth. And so by creating a documentary style film, the filmmakers are basically telling the audience, you should expect this to be true because it's a documentary. I think they play to that and they're right, you know, and that viral marketing really reinforced that because they were basically saying, this is true. We don't, we're telling you it's true, but by putting it in the framework of a documentary, now, you know, it's true because it's handheld cameras and it's, it's, it's regular people doing these things and interviewing regular people. Uh, there, there are no tricks with the camera, even though there really were sometimes, but right. But yeah. So it's, but yeah, it's because these are, when it's, it's like a re- relative thing. So y- you can relate interviews and the way that this footage is shot to other documentaries that you have seen, which then blends it to that genuineness. It makes you feel like it fits into that bubble of reality. And, you know, you mentioned the way in which some of the filming was done. These things fascinate me. I mean, this movie just to no end. I am blown away by what they were able to accomplish. The actors actually used GPS trackers to find their instructions for the day. So they didn't know this movie was somewhat unscripted or actually a lot unscripted, I guess. So what production team would do is they programmed these waypoints into the GPS units and they would have to locate milk crates and they had three little plastic canisters in each of them. Each plastic canister contained notes on where the story was going for each actor individually. And they wouldn't show the other two their notes. So it was very personalized. And from that point, they were free to improvise the dialogue, provided they followed the general instructions given to them. Wow. Okay. These are like not big name actors. These are people that do not have a huge, you know, history because they had to be unknowns. Mm-hmm. And here they are essentially improvising this entire film mm-hmm. with just these little minor details like, oh, you know, Josh, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and discover that a pack is gone and, and go run off into the woods. Like that's all he knows. And so he does that. The others don't know it's coming. So right. the reactions are real. And mm-hmm. that's where you're saying, again, genuine it may be filmed. It may be a movie. It may not be actually happening, but it is actually happening for them on some level. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where they're going through the woods and Heather says, what the F is that? And freaks out. 
she freaks out because one of the production members is actually in the woods in a costume. And she sees him out of the corner of her eye because he's there to scare her on purpose. So that is a genuine, like, she's actually saying, what the F is that? But she's not talking about what we see in the movie. <laughs> she's talking about what she's actually seeing in the woods. Mm-hmm. But it works so well because it gives you that, there's not, it's not acting. Right. It, it, anymore, in a sense. It's reacting is what it is. I oh, mean, it's, a, that's it's great. A, yeah. And I think when it comes, this, what this movie does so well, to me, what, something I'm learning about when it comes to like the writing process and scripting is this idea of plotting. You know, you have a beginning, a middle and an end. You say, okay, what's, what's our character doing here in the first act? What's our character doing here in the second act? And I think that's what the, it sounds like what the filmmakers did is they said, okay, what do we want to happen in this movie? And they, they essentially just took the whole plotting exercise and put it in canisters and they just gave in their individual characters motivation and said, run with it. And there's risk to that because when you start, I mean, yes, it, it, it's almost like reality television or maybe the beginnings of what reality television is where you have genuine reactions to things, but they're in the confines of an, a scripted environment. So it's not like they just said, okay, today we're going to let you guys just wander around wherever you want to go and we're just going to film you because you can't control that because the filmmakers already have a story in mind. They need to get them from point A to point B to point C. They have to make sure that they reach certain campgrounds or certain places by nightfall in order to perform, you know, to have the next scene take place. So there is scriptedness. But when it comes to the human side of things and the reactions of that, that's where I think the magic of this movie lives is the fact that we have normal people, you know, like us reacting to things like we would. And I think that's why we can connect with them because we're Heather at some point and we are Mike at some point, you know, we are all three of these characters at some point. Right. And we go, man, I would totally do that. Or man, I would never do that. And yes, we do that with other characters in other movies, but it's this weird thing because we're doing it in real time and we're going, these guys weren't portraying anything. They were reacting to each other. And it almost feels more genuine than watching characters on screen because at the end of the day, you can say, whew, yeah, that was that was a really great portrayal and that really made me feel this this movie no we're walking away going man that's me <laughs> because that's a real person doing that right and it it just increases the power of the emotional connection that you can have to a movie like this yeah they actually i think they filmed it over 8 days and yeah yeah 8 days over the course of the filming the production team was leaving less and less food for them so by the last two days, Heather and Mike, Josh was gone at this point. In fact, when Josh was gone, he was actually happy because he got to leave early because he had a concert to go to. Yeah. I remember I was reading that bit of trivia and I was like, that's just wrong. But, um, yeah. Meanwhile, Heather and Mike are still in the woods for their eight day run and they were only getting a power bar, a piece of fruit and water each day. So, I mean, they really, again, method acting or whatever you want to call it, but they had to immerse themselves in this experience 
it was actually frustrating. They actually got into arguments in like the actors got into arguments. Heather was berating Josh and Mike at one point for not uh, wanting to go investigate sounds and things because she felt like that was what she was supposed to be doing, you know? And I, I just, I can't even, the whole experience is just so wild. And I don't know. I wonder if it could even be recreated now because it's been done once. And once it's been done, we all are going to always like the prestige. We're looking for the trick. Right. And who knows, you know, we probably would see it. Um, you also briefly mentioned earlier about the amount of time of editing this took. It took eight months for them to edit. They had 19 hours of footage and they got that down to, I think it was like an 81 minute runtime mm-hmm. or something like that's, that's a lot of footage to go through to yeah. get the right amount. Like, you know, like all that stuff that they did in the woods and this is what it comes down to, you know, there, yeah. there's, I, I really almost wish I could see it like all 19 hours, just watch them out there. Not even in the context of a scary movie or a movie at all, but just seeing how they managed life out of the woods under eight in eight for eight hours under yeah. these conditions. Yeah. I think the original cut that was either screened or at least that was put in the can was like almost two hours and they were able to get it knocked down because they, they felt like they were missing the point of in the tone of the movie with it being so long. So getting it down to uh, just, just under like 81 minutes um, was quite the feat, especially for 19 hours of footage. I've got unexpected sounds going on behind me right now. And that's not cool. Um, <laughs> I don't see anything behind you, at least nothing in a white sheet. <laughs> oh, so uh, speaking of scary then, <laughs> not that I'm scared, but let's talk about the scares of this movie. And, they're largely off screen, I think. And that's, that's part of what we said earlier is so special about this. So different is that you don't see the monster. There's this focus on the buildup vice, this vice, a constant dose of jump scares. Um, in most horror films, you get those, those jump scares. And in this one, there may only be one scene that I would call anything close to a jump scare. And I don't really call it a jump scare. It's, it's the terrifying scene. And it's one of the most scary <laughs> movements I've ever seen in my life. Um, and again, that's part of why I will never go want to go camping again is that scene. Um, so that scene is scary, but overall I feel like the terrifying stuff happens mostly when the camera isn't pointed at anything and you're only, cue to th- the fact that they're being scared is the sound of breathing and their frantic talking and it is oh my goodness like it is horrifying yeah yeah i the 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 number one thing that turns me off about horror is jump scares i don't like being jump scared at all um for a conversation to be had later but it's just i don't enjoy it i mean it's just not something that it it doesn't make me happy when it happens and I'm, you know, whatever. But that's one thing that really made me enjoy. It got me enjoying this movie was that the scares were genuine and they didn't feel like I had to be jumping out of my seat to be genuinely frightened. Even the scene that you're referring to, which was incredibly terrifying, wasn't a jump scare. It was almost like something gradual. Like it, it, it wasn't like, and, and here's the thing. There was no music in this. There were no like 
sound effect musical sound effects like we get with the traditional horror film when a jump scare happened you have an increased like you know whatever it is and to me that ratcheted up the tension because you didn't know when something was going to happen or when these actors were going to respond to something because it wasn't i'm i'm really glad that we're doing this a few days removed from watching scream because scream celebrated that those tropes of saying oh we know when something's going to happen because we know the rules of horror well the rules of horror are thrown out in this movie because it could even happen i mean take for instance when they find the three rock formations (laughs) of or no excuse me the seven rock formations of i guess the assumed seven children but they never say that by the way no, we just know because of the interviews. Exactly. We're we're given these hints, these little nuggets of information that we just deduce, oh, that's probably it. And then later on, there it's like late afternoon, still daytime, you know, still the safe part of the movie, right? And we see all those uh twig formations. And they're just they're just frightening, you know? Like if I were to walk into the woods at noon, <laughs> on like a Saturday afternoon and see those things, I would be just as scared as if I were hanging out in my tent. It, well, maybe not that scared, but I would be pretty terrified and I would just run for my life. You know, I'd be like, I'm glad I have five hours to get out of the woods because (laughs) this freaks me out. So the movie gives us this ability or I say, gives us the ability. This movie makes us feel fear in even the most comfortable situations, like even mm-hmm. with these interviews, as these interviews are progressing and we get to, uh, oh, I can't remember the character's name, but that old lady. That's my favorite. <laughs> uh, by that point, we're like, oh my gosh, what are we into? She's freaky. Is she going to, is something going to happen? Is she going to like jump at somebody? And the right, fact because she, every other horror movie makes you think that, oh, one of these people is the killer. And right. they're going to come back in the end and we're going to be, oh, that person was interviewed and they turned out to be the bad guy. And, you know, it was all a ruse, but yeah. that's not this movie. No. And the, the other thing about that is that because this is found footage and documentary, the documentary style stuff, I almost, there was almost a safety switch on for me visually, because if there's going to be a jump scare, there's usually going to be it. It's usually going to be preceded by something pretty fantastic, you know, something CG related or something, some kind of special effect or something like I can see visually on the screen they're going to zoom in on this person's face or they're going to get real close to him. And that never happened. You know, I think the first 15 minutes of the movie we get, you know, after the first 15 minutes, it's just the three of them. Like we never get any other characters outside of, of these three. And there's never any kind of camera trickery or whatever that would lead to me seeing something, um, scary or abnormal at that point i was I, my, my fear was for what i would consider more genuine reasons rather than theatrical ones and for some reason for me i can digest that a little bit more i think i mentioned earlier it's probably because i can control that but um you know i love the fact that that the filmmakers give us this sense that nothing is safe like we're never safe at any given point you know, in the daytime or with three people instead of just one, that there's never safety in numbers at this point because <laughs> there's always something that's going to happen. Um, so to me, that was that was something that was just as good. 
Yeah, I would agree. And so the, the two big criticisms when it comes to the scares are that the constant sound of rocks and twigs uh, in the woods was too minimalistic to create fear. And it sounds like both of us would wholeheartedly disagree with that. Um, yeah, absolutely. We think that the buildup and the consistency of that is what does generate fear. And another big criticism of this that kind of ties into the way it's made, but but really is affecting the scariness of it is the shaky cam. So again, characters doing real character stuff, running scared, not knowing what they're doing. The camera is not always pointing where they would normally point it if they were like being directed. Right. right? They're just doing the thing and the camera goes where it goes, which is what I love personally. But I feel that that adds to the fear when watching the movie and some people do not. Some people think that it really makes them or some people got actual actually ill from the shaky cam. Did it bother you? Nope, not at all. And I remember that being a criticism and one that I guess I from a secondary or tertiary point of view decided to say, yeah, that's probably why I didn't see it because it had shaky cam. That's going to bug me, but it did not bother me at all this time. And it's a product of being older and being able to appreciate this movie for what it is. But to me, I didn't even really notice the shaky cam because by the time those things really got nuts, which was like in the back third of the, of the movie, you weren't really being trained to look at anything. You were just really being trained as an audience to experience what the characters were experiencing and kind of, it's kind of like when you lose a sense that your other senses mm-hmm. kind of become stronger. Yeah. I felt like that's kind of what was happening. Compensation. I, right. I, I kind of gave up the ability to see anything, especially at night. And like every, th- this was something that I really kind of picked up on this time. Every night that they camped got worse and worse and worse and worse in terms of just the, the elements that were, taking them on, you know, whatever I could, I don't know how you describe it because we don't know what that is. We were never actually told, but, right, but the, the, it but the assumed, worse worse. the assumed witch or whatever it is that's going on, we start hearing more sounds. We start hearing voices. We start hearing yelling. And, and then of course that one moment with the tent that just, whoa, whatever. Um, Mm-mm, man, but that thing but, starts shaking and I'm, I'm almost out. Like I'm, yeah. that's when I wanted to be out of the movie. Like I was yeah. done. I was like, okay. But what you're, what you're experiencing there is not something that you're seeing. It's something that you're feeling and something that you're yes. hearing. Yes. You're all four of your other senses with the exception of maybe smell and t- or two, you know, smell and taste your other two senses, you know, hearing and okay. Maybe it's just hearing. I don't know, whatever, but your, your primary I guess the primary sense of a movie being seeing is now being hindered in this movie. And it's not because of the shaking cam, although shaking cam kind of contributes to it, but you're forced to move into those other kinds of senses. And now those sound effects become a lot more important. You know, the amount of them, the children that we hear in the, in the, you know, in the distance, Josh is yelling at the very end. I'm like, Oh my word, what is going on here? Like I'm with them. I'm about to start throwing cuss words around myself. I'm about to, you know what? That tense shaking, I'm just balling up into the fetal position. Cause if I try to run away, I'm sure something's going to get me. 
you know, if it's, if it's right there shaking the tent, I'm like, okay, well, Jesus, come and get me now because yeah, I'm no balling kidding. up and I'm saying I'm staying put. But, but I think it's because of the fact that we don't see anything and we can't because we're, well, let's go back to Dunkirk because of that, you know, as we talk through the sound and how we don't catch a lot of the voices and a lot of the dialogue, it immerses us in that world of confusion and chaos. And I think that same thing happens here with the, with the shaky cam and the dark and everything happening just off screen. I think it really enhances what I think the, the filmmakers were trying to do. Yeah. I, I with you a hundred percent. Um, totally. Uh, Mike actually is quoted as talking about how the children, the voices of the children, the sounds was the thing that scared him the most. Like it legitimately rocked him because they weren't expecting it. And it was children play. It was recorded sounds of children playing from the neighborhood of one of the directors being played from a boom box somewhere out in the woods. So, I mean, they don't even know where it's coming from. Like they don't know. <laughs> I can't, I can't get over like how this must've, like, they don't know where it's coming from. When you're an actor, you have to intentionally not look a certain direction because you know, something is there that you're not supposed to react to. Right. So you have to look in the direction of that the script needs you to look or sense in that direction. But in this, they didn't have that ability. They just, it, it just is, it's out there like, oh my gosh, super scary. Um, I mean, for me running through the woods in the dark is almost just as scary. Like I don't even need the sound or the the children or anything like that happening for me. If I have to run through the woods in the dark, uh, you know, yeah. like your the twigs are breaking. I'm worried about snake stepping on a snake or tripping and breaking my foot in mm-hmm. in the sequel. That's what happens. Someone ends up stabbing their foot with something and it gets all infected and diseased and just it's awful. And Wait, like, is that's the, the, the is like the recent sequel or the other one? The recent sequel. So Blair Witch Two. Uh, the Book of Shadows is not a word. It is awful, like terrible, bad, bad movie, bad. Um, does not add really to the story. It's it's kind of retconned in the director's minds, and and they just it's yuck. We don't we don't want to count that it's one. Yuck. I'm talking about I'm talking about Blair Witch, which um, Blair, Blair Witch, which uh, we actually did a mini sode on last September when it released. Uh, I did that with uh, Reed Lackey of the Fear of God podcast it's a horror podcast so you know if anyone's listening and you want to check out the sequel Blair Witch or hear Reed and I's conversation about that we both really liked it um it got middling reviews but we both were were higher on it than most people we thought it was was really good and had some incredibly scary stuff in it uh at the end that was pretty unique but um yeah it was just I mean I just can't imagine people not thinking this is scary I don't I don't know (laughs) I don't know what it is that would make them think the it monster is scarier. Well, and again, I think it goes back and I'm just going to use personal experience. I I think it depends on what you define as what scares you and, and, and why that personal. You're right. Yeah. It's all personal preference. And I think you and I have discussed my, my lack of enjoyment of horror has to do with the fact that it really comes from, there's one thing to be just be uncomfortable from a creep, creepy factor, there's another thing to be uncomfortable from from visuals that stick with you and stay in your mind. And there's a lot to be said about the power of the imagination, which is definitely something that's at play in this movie. But the power of the imagination 
we still have that ability as human beings to not, you know, if it's in our heads that we've imagined, we can probably get rid of that as opposed to seeing a trippy clown, you know, convulsing towards a child and with really scary eyes or whatever that you just can't unsee. And so I think, I don't know if that's a, if it's a this or that, but I think for each person who likes certain movies, like certain types of horror or like all types of horror, I think it comes down to how you like to experience fear, how you like to experience being scared and what, what scared means to a person. So for one person, that might mean that they just enjoy the love of jump scares and they love just being kind of shaken to their core uh, from thematic elements, or maybe someone loves to explore the, I mean, like you've mentioned, you, the, the exploration of the supernatural helps inform your faith in a lot of ways. And so it, it's really about, I think, I think horror comes down to what you experience and what you enjoy is, can be a direct reflection of, of kind of who you are and what you know about. So, so it, help me understand what my limitations were as, as a spectator, as an audience and what I could and could not handle. John Carpenter's the thing is sort of borderline for that because it's really more gross and weird, uh, embedded in a really great story. I'm sure. I mean, alien sits in that same, same kind of thing. I mean, I can definitely digest alien, even though it's more sci-fi than horror, but it's, it's definitely considered some kind of horror. And then you have, um, you have, scream which is really more slasher than anything else it's less about being scared and more just about being like oh my gosh what's going on um the blair witch project does something different for me and i think that it just it really comes down to a person's preference and how they are able to digest this kind of this kind of genre yeah i think so well let's talk about heather um heather 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 Good old Heather, Heather, the leader, Heather, the always in control, Heather, the domineering, <laughs> Heather, the annoying, um, <laughs> that some people would, that. some people would call her. Um, so one of the big criticisms, another big criticism of this film was that Heather is just too annoying to be entertaining. So what is your read on Heather Donahue, the star of the show, the documentary <laughs> filmmaker extraordinaire? <laughs> I didn't believe her as a documentarian necessarily. Okay. I yeah. thought that because, well, okay. I, I say I didn't believe her as a professional documentarian. I, I, I saw her as one that was highly motivated. Someone who was the movie reinforced this for sure. Someone who wanted to get every experience possible where the movie broke down for me a little bit was when she refused to turn the camera off. And of course, as an audience member, if you turn the camera off, we're not going to see, and ergo, we're not going to get more of the story. So you have to have some kind of way to continue to film that makes logical sense. And to me, I don't feel like I got enough of her as a documentarian and enough, uh, enough as a motivated character to justify keeping the camera on. Like I didn't feel like I didn't get enough 
backstory of her to say, yeah, she's been doing this for a few years. She's gotten the bug ever since blah, 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 blah. And, you know, she'll stop at nothing to get everything she wants. I mean, by the time we get to the place where she's, she's definitely domineering. She's definitely the alpha, not male alpha person in the, of, of the three. And that plays well into Mike, who I think is more of the, you know, he's, he's the equal opposite. I think they both as characters are great opposites for each other. And of course, Josh is the peacemaker of the two of the three, excuse me. But I think for her, there were times when she kind of got annoying. I I didn't really care for her. (laughs) For some reason, I was kind of giggling every time she'd read from that journal and she'd say, and she sat here and this is where this happened. She, she kind of sounded like Moira Kelly. I don't know if you know her as an actress, but, but I kept hearing Moira Kelly's voice and I wanted her at some point to say toe pick, you know, because, you know, I, I, know I know. Who, yeah, I know. <laughs> and if I closed my eyes, I was like, why is Moira Kelly in this movie? Because the way she actually talked, the monologue that she gave whenever she was on camera reciting that stuff was very different, obviously, from her natural kind of normal personality voice. And I guess that was good because when you're filming a documentary, you're going to be that you know, you're going to be a character. So I guess that played into it, but she didn't bother me necessarily. I thought her character progressed nicely. I just, I didn't feel like it didn't make complete sense for me when she refused to turn the camera off. Like if she's this freaked out, she's throwing that camera on the ground and they're leaving. I mean, they are out of here. Like, why are you still filming this? You idiot person. Okay. So let me give a rebuttal to that. Okay. So, first of all, I love what Josh says to her. Uh, he says, why do you like this video camera so much? It's like a totally filtered reality. It's like you can pretend everything isn't quite the way it is. I think he's right. I think he is spot on. And what I, what I think, I think two things. One is that Heather truly does want to document this experience. She wanted this to be, uh, you know, a documentary and she wanted it to tell the story, etc. And in doing so, if she was to turn it off and miss that moment, right? Because you're looking, they're looking for, they're not going to get a redo if they find something. It could be a one in one shot type, type experience. She doesn't want to miss that. She's come all the way out here. They've gone through all of this effort already. They've gone through all of this scary experiences. Like, why would she want to turn it off now? Uh, there's also at play the idea that the filtered reality, like it, by looking, by keeping yourself in the world of we're making the documentary, we have the camera on, we're looking at the world through this lens. It kind of takes a little bit of the fear away. The fact that they're actually really lost, which I guess would bring my third point is turn it off and run where it doesn't matter where they run. It, 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 it like they can go all the way in one direction and they're just going to end up back at the same stupid river. Right. True. And so I think that she knows that there's no, she knows she can't get them out of this. She doesn't admit it for a long time. And that's a, that's one of her major character traits is she's very prideful. Um, but I think I, I don't, I guess that's why I don't have a problem with it. I would say, mm-hmm. um, is because I, I feel like it makes sense to me. For right. her character. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's what Heather would do. Uh, and so it doesn't annoy me in the terms of like a critical 
you know, analysis of it. Yeah, uh, but I, I can I can get the I'll get on board with one of your points that being or two of your points. One being, yeah, if you're going to drop and run, where are you going to go? So, yes, the point is, if you're going to have to stick around, you might as well film it. And I also agree with the fact that there is a little bit of filtered reality when it comes to holding a camera. You know, if I'm holding the camera, I guess there's a part of me that feels like I'm I'm safe behind here because it's not, you know, what I see in the in the lens is not real. You know, it's not going to come and get me. Where that breaks down for me though, and at the same time doesn't lose the experience of the film is that very last sequence going into the cabin. Because at that point, what are you filming? You're going after Josh. You're chasing after Mike. Why are you still filming this? And at that point, you've got to believe that you're not being a documentarian. You are being a human being that's you're trying to find Josh. Like the 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 purpose is trying to find your friend, not trying to capture that on film. Although I'm grateful for that because it makes for a great movie, but that, that to me didn't feel completely real, but I have to, again, I have to suspend my disbelief, especially knowing what I know now that this wasn't a real actual thing. It's a slippery slope because when you're doing a documentary type thing, you have to kind of, you're, you're playing with a different set of rules. And when fear comes into play and you're, your motivation changes from I'm filming this to I've got to go find my friend. Um, that to me kind of breaks it a little bit. Didn't hurt my film experience, but it kind of breaks the reality a little bit. That's a fair point. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. So I will agree that that makes some sense is to you. If you're going after your buddies, why would you be trying to film, film it? But I still think that there is, there's a world where that makes pretty perfect sense in that this is you could be dying and finding out what is having it documented it's all for naught if it's not sure. on the camera sure I, I get that and and for me again my experience with this movie now and my enjoyment of it doesn't come from the fact that i think it's real so the right. documentary portion of it the strength behind that from the potential of being real isn't a factor anymore. It's for different reasons. So I can throw out that whole doesn't really make sense argument just because I enjoyed the movie for other reasons that were still strengthened by the documentary style. Yeah. Okay. So she's definitely, she's so controlling in the beginning. I mean, she is the one in charge. There is no question about it. And she's kind of a B word about it. Sometimes she's not very friendly. And I, I got to ask, do you ever feel like Heather, her pride reaches a level where she cares more about the documentary than she does her friends? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's clear in the whole deal with the map, you know, her inability to let these other guys lead their inability to her inability to, basically swallow her pride and say, you know what guys, I don't know where we are. Let's try to work together and, and get out of here. Um, they're somewhat mutually exclusive, but at the same time, they're sort of tied into each other because she doesn't want to give up control. You know, this is her movie. This is her thing. And she'll stop at nothing to make sure that she gets what she wants. I, I personally, there's this weird fan theory of me in me that thinks that 
she knew how to read that map and she intentionally got them lost because she didn't capture all the footage that she wanted to um in their the couple of days that they had you know i, I don't i mean that's a far stretch theory but because of her character i think she would stop at nothing and i felt like she got some great interviews and she did a couple of great little monologues but they didn't capture anything those first two days they really didn't they didn't have any incidents they had maybe one that second night before all the stuff started ramping up and you know it's interesting that what happened with the map did because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't her fault but the genuine reaction to the map getting lost and how it got lost uh her reaction to it felt very genuine because now she was completely out of control like she could not find you know she she could not get them out of the woods yeah so i'm glad you brought up the map because that is one of the most iconic scenes in this movie if there's if there's probably there's probably three iconic scenes i would say if people remember this movie they remember the tent shaking and everybody freaking out maybe four they remember heather giving her little monologue at the end uh, they remember the final shot of the movie with mike standing in the corner and then they remember the map scene where mm-hmm. michael goes literally crazy somewhat um and, and and this i saw this as an much differently i think now as a 38 year old man than i did as a 20 year old man because i really resonated this time around and in recent years i have as well when i watched this with this slow dissolve of trust that is happening throughout this movie and you know i think some of this was set up by the filmmakers just in again brilliantly brilliant ideas when they were making the movie there's actually an hour and a half worth of footage that they shot in the hotel when the actors are getting drunk the night before they go out to the woods and they're actually drunk like they actually got drunk and then just filmed them doing whatever they did like interacting um again so it's all improv it's it's their actual personality traits and characteristics came to light and so I think that some of this is natural. Uh, it's natural reacting, like we talked about. It's not all character. So, you know, when Mike's going nuts because he's kicked the river in, uh, uh, kicked the river in, kicked the map of the river, Heather doesn't know that was going to happen. And I think there has to be a level of internal fear. Like they know that, yes, they know the producers are out there and in theory, they're going to come and pack up their stuff. Right. But they're still out in the woods by themselves. And so I think there might be a little bit of paranoia there. Like in the back of their mind, there would be for me wondering like, okay, like what are we supposed to, okay, now what, um, what's going to happen next? And so I think, I don't know. I, I really, I just really like this scene. I think it feels so realistic to me as to how someone would break down. Um, I, and at that point, you know, how could you ever trust it, Mike again? And, and, and it just, it puts them in this position to where the fear begins to get heightened because now they've lost control. This is the moment where, control is out the window and right. they are fully in it. Yeah. And you don't, this I think is, is a real point of sympathy for each one of the characters because they've all sort of played a part up till then. 
and they've all been in their comfort zones as much as they can be. Heather obviously being the most obvious and being her um, domineering, in control leader. Mike being sort of the, I'm the filmmaking guy. I'm just going to be the camera dude or whatever. And then Josh being the middleman. And here we genuinely get a breakdown where these guys just do not know what to do. And they start attacking. And, and this is, I think, where we talked about earlier, where these characters' reactions get the most real. Like they're not portrayed at this point. They are reactive. They are very much like reacting to each other. They're not, they're not going off a script. When, when Heather starts yelling at Mike, he keeps going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she's like, she's like, you know, F this. And you know, that doesn't even matter. You know, it's things that we both expect and don't expect them to say, because there are things that we would expect ourselves to say. And I think that's what creates the rawness and the the genuineness of the whole movie is wrapped up in in that particular scene. And you're right, this this breakdown of trust reaches reaches its you know its breaking point right at that moment. And when when I saw this, I'd forgotten that that scene had taken place because it'd been several years since I'd seen it. So oh man, so when <laughs> when he when he starts when he's laughing, it it, it, it comes kind of out of no nowhere because they're laughing at her because because she's got her shoes all wet and mike just keeps laughing and she's like gosh he just he thinks it's funny that i've got my shoes wet because <laughs> i put the, the effing map in the river and at the same time when she starts talking and saying wait you better be kidding i'm like what did you just say and then i thought she he was starts, kidding yeah i, I mean i, I even and to this then, day i still want to believe he's kidding the first time he says it yeah and then, you know, I'm like right in line with her when she starts breaking down because I'm like, I cannot believe this. I can. And again, it speaks to the testament of how we've gotten immersed in this movie with these guys. And, uh, and it's brilliant. Well, before we move to the connecting point, I want one more thing I want to make sure we talk about, and that's the ending. And it's, it's up for debate. It's controversial. It's questionable. Uh, it's ambiguous. So I want to know what you think of the ending. What what do you think is going on here? We we literally never see a quote unquote Blair Witch. So is she real? Uh, if she's not real, who did the killing? Are they dead? What's going on? Well, those are all the questions that still have not been answered because I don't. Having not seen anything beyond this movie, we have not, if we've not seen, we, we've not recovered bodies or have we? I don't know. Um, don't worry about anything else other than this okay. movie though. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. This movie. So as of this movie, we don't know if they're still alive. Um, we, uh, we, we've heard Josh screaming and yelling. Uh, we know he's missing a tooth at some point. <laughs> And all we see is Mike facing backwards and, and then Heather screams and then the camera falls down. So we make our own assumptions. If I were to play the suggestion card, I would say that something has taken hold of each one of them as they've gotten more and more immersed in these woods 
And that moment with Mike, with his back to us, is probably the most chilling image I've ever seen in a movie. Because, and this is again, such the power of the filmmakers, the suggestion at the beginning, when we hear that story about uh, Rustin Parr, and how he takes these children down to the basement, and he tells them to face the wall while he kills the other one because he can't have them look. Ugh, even just talking about it just freaks me out. And so when we see that, I love the fact that it doesn't linger. Like that we see it for like four seconds and we hear a scream and the camera goes down. So for me, if I had to make a suggestion, I'd say that there is a murderer in the woods and that it's not the Blair Witch. It's somebody else. It's another killer. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a copycat of this Rustin Parr guy. Interesting. That's actually very interesting. So my potential theory, uh, is well known as well, but it, um, you know, it may, I, I've recently changed my opinion on this. Uh, when I was younger, I fully believe this was the Blair Witch, right? This is, I didn't want to evaluate this deeply, but when you look at what actually takes place, the sequence of events is such Josh screams, uh, Heather and Mike run after him. They run to find him and they find the house. Mike goes in first. Heather follows and then finds him in the basement facing the wall. Then Heather is presumably killed because something happens and the camera drops. So if they heard Josh, could Josh have been the one to kill them? Ooh. Now, What's even more interesting than that, in my opinion, and the one that I really like, is if Josh is the killer, why would Mike ever... What would put Mike in a corner standing there the way he is, completely nonchalant, by the way, just staring at the wall, oblivious, as if nothing really is going on? Mm -hmm. Unless maybe he's doing that intentionally to draw Heather's attention. So... Could Josh and Mike be in on this together? Could they have discovered this cabin and been so overwhelmingly angered by what she's put them through and, and they're suffering from so much psychosis at this point of being lost and angry that they've decided to kill her? And it's fascinating to me that that's possible. And I, and I love it. I love that it could be those things. It could be that. It could be what you're told, what you suggested. Or it could be something supernatural that, you know, made the sound of Josh's voice happen and drew them there to actually kill them. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to believe that it's something supernatural only because nothing has been hinted at in this film that it's something supernatural. Like everything we see could have been was genuinely man made. Like all the all the uh all the stick figures, there was no levitating um, I actually kind of like your theory that it could be Josh and Mike getting back at, at, at her trying to, because of all this, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, they're like, mm -mm, nope, we're not doing this. Not going to not, no, no, we're, we're, you're going down. And because I think that that map scene was genuinely everyone's beginning everyone's breaking point. And so mm. it wouldn't surprise me if both of those guys, not just out of anger, but out of almost madness said, we're going to end this once and for all. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. Definitely out of madness. Um, it's not a normal reaction, but I think they might have been at this point between that, the dissolve, dissolving of the trust and the, and everything that's going on and the, the terror of believing they can't, they're never going to get out of this woods. Like they're lost. So if they just happen to stumble across this, this old beat down cabin, mm-hmm. um, you know, why not our house, whatever you want to call it, why not, why not utilize it? It'll get her to turn the camera off. Yeah. <laughs> it That's definitely sure. did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as I think about it, only something, you know, I'm going back on what I said, but only something supernatural or premeditated would allow Mike just to stand there nonchalantly facing the wall. So it either has to be something supernatural. Exactly. Or, something premeditated yes that's that's my thinking as well which makes for a great ambiguous ending because it plays into both both theories very well yep that's one of my favorite things about it i I love movies that do this yeah um it's it makes them rewatchable and uh and gives them a lot of added value so yeah cool man well um we've talked a lot about this movie and and it makes me very happy and i've enjoyed the heck out of it but we haven't done is given our connecting points. So how about we do that now? Sounds do, good. Did you have one? Well, we've just talked about it actually. That ending okay. was probably the most chilling that I experienced. And the, the map scene, it was a very, very close one for me. I mean, I think I, I wanted that one. And then I, I just, I look at this last scene and in the power of this movie and willing as we've been talking, I've been kind of favoriting certain websites and certain pages. Like YouTube actually has that sci-fi documentary uh-huh. uh, on it. So I've, I've flagged it to watch at some point, not tonight. Cause I want to go to sleep tonight. Right. Um, but uh, at some point I really want to check it out, but I, you know, I pull up things like final scene Blair, Witch, and I see that one image just boom, boom, you know, of, of Mike sitting there. And I just, I think the when when I look at the power of suggestion in this movie and how powerful it is and how much it just grips me, that scene just makes it resonate so deeply because it as a as an audience, I feel like the filmmakers are are really putting their trust in us to pick up on things, to hear everything, and to to listen. There was in 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 a normal movie you would have probably said, okay, th- if, if a filmmaker says, okay, this is important. So we're going to linger on this piece of information for a long time. And the way that piece of information came about, about the kids and, and each kid having to face, you know, away from the murder came about just in a string of interviews. Like it was never really just lingered upon. I mean, the information stayed with me, but so did a lot of information and throughout the film, we see those little hints of those interviews start kind of taking place, like the seven rock formations and later on three rock formations around the campsite, you know, I guess assuming it's going to be, you know, Heather, Josh and, and Mike. But um, that last scene, I think, was so pivotal because of what we just talked about, the fact that it, it's both ambiguous and obvious at the same time, I re- I read about alternate cuts that were made, alternate takes where you had Mike 
um, being bound up like one of the one of the stick figures in that in that kind of pose of of the stick figures, one of him levitating or Hank being hung. And I'm glad that we got the ending that we did because I think it created the the moment where you when when it you see him, you see the camera drop, and then you see it go to black. You, your mouth is just hanging open. You're like, uh, are, no, wait, hold on. What? And you're kind of forced to just have to process it and imagine it like you did the whole movie. Like you're having to imagine and put the pieces together like a documentarian, like an investigator and saying, okay, wait, was that, did that, but in the interview, they said, and so you're trying to, you're trying to capture all this stuff that you just absorbed. And more than anything, it makes you want to just hit that replay button and say, okay, let's watch this again. Uh, a lot like Shyamalan's twist endings. You kind of want to yeah. go through again and, and check it out. So I think for me, the emotional connection that I had with it was one that was chilling. It's the moment that made me go, ah, this is how I can enjoy horror because I can feel this really eerie sense of creepy kind of fear. And at the same time, enjoy that moment, which is something that I don't get from, from a lot of horror. So I think on a personal level, this is a, this kind of cinched Blair, Witch is a movie that the, excuse me, the Blair, Witch project as, Good as job. a movie, it's a movie that, um, whose connecting point, uh, also kind of solidified this type of, of, of horror that I could probably find myself digesting if I chose to do it again. Well, good. I, it's a, it's a very, very good point. And I love that you were able to pull that out of it and have that experience with it because I did too. And, um, it's awesome. So my connecting point, uh, is Heather's breakdown, uh, and her message to her parents, uh, and pretty much to everyone uh, in the tent, it's the the other one of the other iconic scenes where she's got half of her face covered and snot coming out of her nose, and it's just just crying, and it's, it's she's a mess. And uh, I'm gonna read I'm gonna read her speech real quick because for listeners who haven't just rewatched the movie in the last couple of days, like we have, uh, you might not remember exactly what she says. But within this context, you know we've. We've gotten to the end almost and everything is, is gone awry. Josh is missing and she just, the, everything is dissolved into fear and paranoia and, and she's finally no longer being prideful. And that's what is important about this to me. And she says, I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. And I'm sorry to everyone. I was very naive. I was very naive and very stupid. And I shouldn't have put other people in danger for something that was all about me and my selfish motives. I'm so sorry for everything that has happened because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault because it was my project and I insisted on everything. I insisted we weren't lost. I insisted we keep going. I insisted we walk south. Everything had to be my way and this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me. We're here now, hungry and cold and hurt, hunted. I love you, mom and dad. I am so sorry. It was never my intention to hurt anyone and I hope that's clear. And she starts getting crazy and she said, I'm so scared. What was that? I'm too scared to close my eyes and I'm scared to open them. I'm going to die out here every night. We just wait for them to come. And then she balls. Now 
I love this man because in this moment, she owns it. And whether or not she dies or lives, this is a moment of redemption to me. This is a moment of confession. Um, she is outwardly speaking and admitting her her flaws and her mistakes. And what this reminds me of is just that bad things happen. And this world has evil in it. And good people get hurt. Innocent people get hurt when they shouldn't. And that moment when you really think you're going to die, as she must at this moment, how powerful must that be? And it makes me wonder, like, what would I say? Who would I talk to? This is what goes through my mind when I watch this scene. And so it just, it kind of rocks me to the core, honestly, because it feels so raw and real to me. And I just, I think it's, it's so brilliantly done and it's, it's an awesome, awesome connecting point for me. I mean, it's not, it's not a happy one, granted. It doesn't bring me great joy <laughs> to think about, but it does make me think about that. Um, and also a little bit of trivia to go along with it is that when Heather actually is filming this, she believed that she was speaking directly into the camera. So that whole like half of her face shot was an accident and she just didn't realize that she'd zoomed in too much and it turned out perfect because I think it amplified that scene in a way that we would not have gotten had we seen her whole face. It made it even more um, impactful. That's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome, but very cool trivia there. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff, man. And, and and if you want to tie that into the ending, just imagine them hearing her say all this. Because it's right after this that it all goes down. Oh, yeah. So she's just admitted all of these things. She said, like, I did all of these terrible things. Like, okay, now you need to die. You know, like, I mean, it's from their perspective. Like high-fiving each other in the cabin, like, hey, you ready to do this? Yeah, like, okay, now she, no, she has to die now. You know, so, um, yeah, I don't know. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I appreciate you uh, going through this one with me. It's been great. I'm glad that this is our Halloween episode. I'm excited to put it out there and hear what listeners think and find out what their connecting points are and also what their ideas about the ending are. I would love to yeah. hear uh, listeners. If you get this, hit us up on social media. If you get this, if you're hearing this, uh, find us on social media and tell us what your theories are uh, if they align with ours or if you've got something different that we've never heard. Mm-hmm. Well, Patrick, um, let's wrap it up. Where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation? Come find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch. Uh, more than uh, more than likely hanging out on Facebook uh, between those three. You can also find out more about me. This is Patch.com, uh, pictures, uh, writing, things like that. And, um, I'm usually hanging out in the Facebook group. I'm kind of in the shadows. I don't get a chance to talk a lot in the Facebook group, uh, due to just life keeps me busy, but I'm always checking it out, seeing what new things are happening. Love all the conversation that takes place and reading through everything there. Uh, so you can find out more about the, uh, the movies that we cover, the TV shows that we talk about, all the stuff that's big in entertainment in the Facebook group, um, there or, you know, at the, you know, at the website, feelingfilm.com. Uh, if you get a chance, drop us a review on iTunes. We always love to hear new feedback and uh, five-star reviews are best. And uh, I won't say required, but I kind of will say required because 
come on. Why would you leave us anything less than that? Um, and if you want to support us in more ways than just being a listener, although we love that, always love having our listeners here because, you know, it's just us talking uh, until <laughs> until the next day when it's more people talking, which is good. You can support us on Patreon. Uh, we're at patreon.com slash feeling film. Check out some of the tiers that are available there for you for as little as a dollar a month. You can get access to bonus content, get some votes for our monthly donor pick. Uh, this last month or this month, October, we got to do, um, got to do scream. So you could be a part of next month's voting as we begin to drop that. But if you want to support us even more, you might get some stickers, maybe a thank you note here and there and a shout out on the show. So uh, feel free to do that. Patreon.com slash feeling film. Well, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. Uh, you can also find me being very active in the Facebook group or tweeting from the Feelin' Film Twitter account. Um, next week, we have Black Hawk Down. Uh, it's kind of kind of a little bit early for Veterans Day, but it's close, so we're going <laughs> to go with it. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be our, our next episode. Um Kind of, in a way, continuing on our horror theme, sadly. Hmm. But um, I'm excited about that. Patrick, you haven't seen it, right? I have not. Oh, I'm super, super excited for you to see it. All these blind spots. <laughs> I know. Well, that's a good good thing we have a podcast, so we can yep. get you to go through some of them. Uh, and then after Black Hawk Down, we're actually going to do Thor Ragnarok the week after that. So we're going we're gonna to do Thor a week after its release weekend, just to give you all a chance to go see it so that you can join in the conversation with us and come talk to us about it uh, and not feel like you're missing out. And hopefully it will Ragnarok. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> it might. If you'd like an if you'd like an early look at that, uh, feel free to go to feelinfilm.com and check out the written reviews under the read uh, section uh, tab there, and you can find my written review of Thor Ragnarok. I've already seen it. Not going to go into my thoughts here, so you can go find them there if you'd like, or you can wait two weeks and hear us just talk about it. Either one. But that's it for this episode of The Blair Witch Project, which was awesome. We will be back next week, and until then, as we always like to tell you, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.